Faith and Fable, pastoral podcast that discusses common and often controversial topics from a biblical perspective. My name is Matt Miller. And I'm Matt Henry. And we have been working now through various topics regarding social justice, Black Lives Matter, and variegated race issues that are front and center in just about every area of life right now. And these are issues, of course, that dominate the political discussion, but in many ways have become a major focus of the church. Uh, In fact, we're currently seeing a a major divide take place in the church right now. Deep lines have been drawn that seem to become deeper every single week. People are leaving churches that they have attended for decades. Long-standing friends are rapidly becoming enemies, and many churches are fractured and have already even split over these issues. And so this is this is not something I think we can say this is safe or safe to say this. This is not something that's going away or can be swept under the rug no i think i think what it really is is that it's been swept under the rug for so long that all the creepy crawlies are coming out <laughs> yeah that's a good way to put it <clears throat> and you know with the with the rioting and everything else it's just forced it it's like we can't pretend to agree to disagree that there this is more than just a minor doctrine this is actually serious foundational yeah beliefs big time yeah so we we do see this as a watershed issue for the church um and and people are demanding that their pastors take a position and frankly they should i think so Um, too yeah you know the vague generalized statements simply will no longer do and again frankly they shouldn't and while many desire unity which of course is a good thing only disunity seems to keep prevailing and so this is not a happy time for the church right now. Uh, many see what is happening and, and they think it is bad because disunity seems to be the definitive consequence of these discussions. Uh, others see what is happening and think that it is good because it is revealing the true church, they'll say. Uh, but regardless of where you may land, the church is currently experiencing an increasingly tumultuous time right now. Where are you? In what's uh, in what? those two extremes? I, I tend to good. lean, t- I, I tend to think it's a good thing. Um, because of the fact of what you said, it's revealing yeah, things? Yeah, I, I do think it's refining some things. I think so. Um, I think so. I, and I, in certain I, ways. And anyone who knows church history, it's always, it's always through these tumultuous times that good stuff comes out because it forces... Uh, forces the uncomfortable discussion. Yeah. You know, who, it, it is awkward. It's hard. Um, misunderstandings and stuff up, up, up are there, but I think in the long run, it'll be good, even though it's not fun. Right. Yeah. That that certainly is church history, isn't it? Um, and and in many ways, I would say it is reflecting the division that's taking place in the broader culture of America. Uh, and I I think we can all agree that that is sad. And it ought not to be the case, but it nevertheless is. Um, one of the contributing factors, though, on this whole issue within the church, at least, however, is the presence of what many are starting to call a, quote, new canon. And I think it's a very helpful phrase. Um, they're, they're calling this a new canon. Now, what does that mean? Well, a canon, and it's C-A-N-O-N, 
if you're not familiar. Um, canon is a theological term that simply means rule or measure or regulation. Uh, in other words, it is the standard or determinative authority for what controls the church, how we think, how we're to live, how we're to order our lives under God's rule uh, for his purposes. And so in terms of evangelicalism, at least, our canon is the Bible alone. Um, it is our only standard of legitimate authority. And so it is the final arbiter of truth and only principle to which we submit ourselves. And so in light of the social justice movement, there seems to have risen a new canon. That is, there are many books now outside of the Bible which are regarded as, quote, must-reads. Uh, people are quoting them. People are referencing them. And, and here's the key, though, but almost as authoritatively. Um, in fact, many will simply not engage in a conversation with you unless you have first read these books. They seem to have become far more as a result than simply must-reads. Rather, you're essentially forbidden to speak on anything related to race uh, within the church unless you have first read these. Um, and so uh, simply they'll say your voice has no place. Um, and again, it doesn't matter if you framed your statements out with scripture. It doesn't matter if you've developed a true biblical theology of race and reconciliation, unless you have read these and essentially agree with the books, um, then you're not really allowed to speak. Uh, in other words, they're being appealed to as if they possess inherent authority. And it's, it's been interesting to watch people within the church, especially pastors post on social media what they are reading. And to me, the virtue signaling is transparently obvious. Um, all of it speaks to the rise of a new canon. Um, now, of course, many are good evangelicals, and so they would never say with their mouth that these books are authoritative over the no, Bible. No. Um, but the consistent misquoting of Scripture by them, and especially pastors, and the utter lack of faithful exposition of Scripture, and the constant appeal to analytical tools like critical race theory, intersectionality, and even experience, all uh, bespeak of what is truly holding functional authority right now. And all of that, of course, is being pushed forward in these books, this, this new canon. Um, further, the fact that many are told to simply be quiet and start listening and based upon your skin color is also evidence of a new canon. In fact, when people make those kinds of statements, it proves, it shows that scripture is functionally insufficient in their minds to address these issues. Rather, you need to listen uh, or you need to read certain things before you're allowed to speak because the final authority is experience. Um, and if you walk away with a different conclusion than them, you've not yet listened. Uh, in fact, if scripture was truly sufficient, I would say as the sole authority in canon, then experience has no place in determining truth. Amen. All, all that matters is what the Bible has definitively, definitively declared. And what's sad is how many evangelicals will even squirm at a statement like that. Um, and so in many ways, the great division that we see within the church uh, is actually revealing the perspective that many professing evangelicals truly have on the sole authority of scripture alone and as that only canon. And so the sad reality is that the Bible has simply become insufficient. I, th I think that's where we're at, truly. I, I um, would agree. And yeah, and so the, this, this new canon uh, is beginning to hold sway. Um, well, we have read many of these books with a critical eye and pencil in hand. And so what we plan to do is to start giving a basic review of them. We already did one on Color of Compromise by Jamar Tisby. Um, we're gonna do one today, and then we'll see how many more we feel like doing. Because we're getting sick of it. <laughs> Truly. 
Um, and again, we'll say it, we said it last time, but many in-depth critical reviews have come out on all of these from all possible perspectives. And so that is not our goal. Uh, rather, we simply want to give our basic thoughts as two pastors who have had some of our own people inquire uh, or express interest in reading some of these books. Yeah, so what we're going to do today is talk about The Woke Church by Eric Mason. Uh, as he said, we did The Color of Compromise. Hopefully you've listened to that. You saw we're not fans of it. It's yeah. not that we couldn't find good things, but as pastors, we're not interested in just finding something that's good in the midst of a bunch of bad. Yeah, you the know? overall goal of the book we couldn't agree with. No, and... And that, sadly, we're going to find the same thing here with The Woke Church. Um, we would say that of all the books we read, though, so far, this is the least problematic. So we're that's yeah. our effort to try to be nice. Um, it's, it's a relatively small book. It comes in about 160 pages, but they're not even big pages, the, uh, the way it's set up. Um, it's readable. Um, it's very clearly put together in a very manageable way. It was enjoyable to read. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Uh, overall, I got annoyed, but sure. it, yeah, it wasn't like, oh my goodness, you need an editor. Um, <laughs> but you, so this is, a, this is a book that's controlled by four Bs, spelled B-E, and they make up four parts. Uh, be aware, be willing to acknowledge, be accountable, and the last is be active. So those are the major headings. Um, it really... In my mind, it came across like a four-part sermon series that was the basis of the book. I don't know if it was or not, but that's not a bad thing. Um, it's just, it sounds like uh, Eric Mason produced up a series and then realized this, I could publish this and sure. now, now began to uh, work it. So as a result, it's filled with stories, anecdotes, illustrations, and all of that makes for very quick, easy reading but it also makes it a bit dangerous in that it can get uh, the reader lulled into a place of comfort. You're just kind of carried along by those stories. Um, and, and as you're carried along, you, you forget that there's an argument being made and, and the argument is not then engaged and you're not then comparing it with sound, a sound theology. You can kind of be moved by a couple of very, he had some very sad stories mm -hmm. that I have no doubt occurred. I'm not debating that that they're sad, but the conclusions that he draws from that, it's like that I have big problems with. Um, and that's one of the challenges. So if you read the book, keep that in mind. Um, Mason wants us, according to page 24, to be more concerned with knowing Christ and one another than those things that make for distinction between people and organizations. We can get behind that. Right. Um, in other words, he wants us to preserve the unity of the Spirit as stated in Ephesians 4. So we're, we're, we would heartily agree with that. Um, heartily, not hardly. <laughs> heartily. <laughs> um, his definition, though, of woke is helpful on page 25. He says, I quote, Pan-Africanists and Black nationalists use the term woke to refer to no longer be naive nor in mental slavery. We have borrowed the term and redeemed it to, to be used in the context of being awakened from deadened sinful thinking. So I, I kind of like that. I like the idea that he was like, I think it's a useful term, but I'm going to try to redeem it into a Christian sense rather than just how the black nationalist uses it. Yeah. And but, he, well, and he uses that Ephesians 5.14 passage where it says, awake, O sleeper. Yeah, That's yeah. kind of his key. 
So he goes on in the next paragraph to enlarge on the saying. He says, woke is a word commonly used by those in the black community as a term for being socially aware of issues that have systemic impact. Being woke has to do with seeing all the issues and being able to connect cultural, socioeconomic, philosophical, historical, and ethical dots. Now, it's interesting, though, in how in the very first part he says it's being awakened to sinful thinking that you are unaware of. But then he, I don't know if you notice the shift, he makes a shift now to being aware of so-called systemic impacts of various sociological factors. So we've gone from being aware of sin to sociological issues. Um, it's key to realize up front that one does not necessarily mm-hmm. equal the other. And now add to the confusion and concern is on page 26. He also enlarges more the idea of being woke by favorably quoting W.E.B. Du Bois. That's the right way to say, right? I'm, du Bois? I'm, I'm going with it, yep. Um, remembering that Du Bois is a, an avowed agnostic or atheist, and we're unsure we would call him a great man like Mason does. I mean, he's, and the reason we would call, do that is because the foundation of his whole argument is not founded on faith in Christ and the Word of God. So we, it's like the moment you start doing it, you can say a lot of good things, but it's on a foundation of sand. Um, especially his wor- work is rooted in some very seriously problematic thinking. Now, from there, he goes in chapter two, he deals with justice and the gospel. He states on page 41 that Christians are called to pursue a ministry of reconciliation, and he references our favorite passage, 2 Corinthians 5.18, which we dealt with already, and that it's not used correctly. He doesn't even use it. He just kind of throws it out there. That's one of our other problems in this whole movement is it's not that the Christians aren't throwing out scripture, but they never exegete that passage. Um, So you just assume those words mean how they're used. Uh, The way he uses this passage is very common, though, but it is also going beyond the text. The reconciliation that is in view is not person to person, but sinner to God. But Mason, like many others, makes it a social reconciliation between people. So when we have this ministry of reconciliation, he's arguing that we're to be reconciled to one another over these racial issues. Now, on page 53, he says that we cannot know God without understanding his heart for justice. That's fine. We agree. Um, If that was all he said. But just a few paragraphs later, he then moves the reader to see that justice, specifically social justice, is the character of the church. So he now makes that critical shift again. He takes a biblical term of justice, doesn't develop it, and then redefines it to now social justice. And if you're not paying attention as a reader, you're like, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, he never spends any time expounding on the many texts. He just lists several. Uh, he references out of the Old Testament about justice. Uh, but now in a couple of paragraphs, he's now speaking about educational challenges, gentrification, redlining, limited access. I thought this last one was funny. So he does some ones that are historically in the past, and then limited access to healthy food and such. On page 55, I'm like, wow, we just went from God's biblical justice to healthy food. Yeah, uh, I'd like to see how you got there. Um, it's quite a jump. And and without giving him, uh, him giving any sound exposition to show what justice means in the Old Testament passages, we're going to be very reluctant 
to jump with him. And that's important. I would say to you as a reader, when you're reading somebody and they just throw out a couple of verses and then they make their point, don't jump with a person. Ask yourself, has he proven anything yet? Because these are his foundational arguments that the rest of the book is going to flow from. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, then that brings us to chapter three, um, which was pretty decent. Um, we would say it's it's about the fact that in Christ, we are all true family members. He reminds us that we're to pray for one another and not give up on each other. Uh, he finds it remarkable that Paul prays for Philemon uh, on page 61, since he is a slave owner. Um, and, and there it would have been good for him to spend more time on the why, for why Paul was not commanding him to put away slavery, um, but he didn't. Yeah, and, it would have been so useful. Yeah. Um, so there you got a missed opportunity. Um, he, he does a decent job dealing with, with Onesimus, showing how it was not a, a frontal attack on slavery, but an issue of usefulness for the ministry. Um, you know, Onesimus needed to resolve the fact that he ran away, um, and, and Paul needed him for ministry. So he was sent back, um, but with the letter asking Philemon to free him. Um, again, so much could have been added to this section, but he didn't choose to enlarge on it. Yeah, behind it is like an assumption that slavery, slavery is wrong. It's like Paul never says that. He just says, I need Onesimus. He, he ran away from you as a non-believer. He's since come to Christ and has proven useful. I found out what, what I suspect, I can't prove this, but I suspect happened is Onesimus is now ministering with him. He's finding this guy is downright useful. He's a good guy. And in getting to know him, outcomes. Well, I ran away from my master. Mm -hmm. And now Paul's at a conundrum. It's like, ah, I can't keep using you. You're in sin. Yeah. Um, God Isn't did, that interesting? Yeah, you got to go back to him. But I want you. So I'm going to give you this letter. Yeah. Um, speaks a lot of Onesimus and a, what a changed life looks like, that he would actually go back to his master. Um, but also, that's what he's, he's not making an attack on slavery. He's saying, I need this guy, but he's your slave. I need your permission. I'm, I'm, and he presses him on it. But he in no way says, and do that with all the other slaves. Um, yeah. How dare you be a slave owner? Yeah. Um, now, if there is a quibble, uh, it's on page 68 and following, uh, he, he begins to talk about oppression in America, and he introduces privilege and systems designed to keep a person in a position of privilege. And he assumes that privilege and systems are interrelated and oppressive, but again, he never proves the point. Uh, he says that the brokenness today, and this is, this is an interesting one, he says that the brokenness today is at a, quote, devastating level, page 69, to which we would ask, is that true? Um, yeah. if, if, if what we see today is, is devastating, then what were the 60s yeah. or antebellum, pre-civil uh, war days? Um, surely, we would. I think we could all argue or say that blacks are in a much better position to improve their lives today than they were you know, 50 years ago or so. Um, but he doesn't prove it. Uh, he simply assumes it and then says that people are waiting for the church to say something, um, which again is interesting on that point that you just said about Paul, that was not Paul's burden. Right. That would have been a great opportunity for Paul to condemn sure been. a bad thing. Um, so this assumes far more of people than the Bible would say. Um, and it's also setting the stage for an argument that silence is somehow a sign of complicity. Yeah, we're which so is what weary we keep of hearing. people. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. So then we go to chapter four. Uh, here he starts that second major part uh, where it's being willing to acknowledge. So he starts out with that actually a very moving story of a police, uh, a police arresting his father when his father was about 11 for theft. Um, he was beaten by the police. Uh, but Mason's here, I, I thought it was a fascinating story. Mason's grandmother then called her white boss who intervened on their behalf. Mason goes on to say that this event and others color his thinking, which I can understand that, um, about how to deal with whites and how he himself fears for his own son's lives. Now, that's on page 77. The story is very poignant, but the problem with it is it doesn't actually support his point. His father was accused by a man without proof of theft. Uh, he was mistreated by police. We won't debate that. We accept it, and we accept it with sadness. Sure, yeah. I mean, that's not right in any context. But he also had an excellent example of the opposite in a white boss of his grandmother's. No praise for that man who actually, in that time frame, risked much to defend the oppressed. He actually, a white man, stood there and went to the police department and said, no, <laughs> that's not right, and challenged him and actually brought about the guy's uh, release. Um, and this is an altogether too common of an event where you focus on the negative, and yet there's all kinds of other people who are white who are, in fact, fighting against that and resisting it, and we, we, there's no acknowledgement of that. We're only going to focus on that shouldn't have happened to your father. It didn't. It did, though. It happens to all kinds of people. And, and yet there's also this positive thing. The reality today is that the black man has more reason right now, sadly, and we're not saying this to be snotty. Uh, the black man right now today has more reason to fear another black man than a white man. It's well documented. I mean, right now, Chicago is just shattering records of homicides and they're primarily black and black and and it's like to listen to it you'd swear whites are wandering around the streets with guns just shooting people down who are black but that's not the case there and it but it's a narrative that we see constantly pushed and it's said so often that yeah. people just assume it so he says on page 78 we can no longer afford to remain asleep to what has happened and then he says what continues to happen now i question that I question how many whites, especially white Christians, are really asleep to slavery and racism of the past. At the same time, we are likely to go separate ways with him on the unsubstantiated implication that nothing really has changed either. The sort of racism he points backward to is something he cannot point forward to in the present day, but he assumes it's there. So on page 79, he says that the Quakers— were a bright light as they would help runaway slaves. So again, he's now backwards, going looking in the past. Well, we're happy he points that out. But there is an irony present, too, because though he acknowledges them, in reality, in his frame of thinking, based on his tweets and other things and sermons that we've heard, they're still guilty of racism <laughs> right? because they're whites. Right. And so if you happen to be the offspring of those Quakers, you're still guilty of being racist because you are white and you're part of that systemic racism that he's really arguing for now. So like Tisby, Mason brings up the Nate Turner, or is it Nat, Nat Turner, Turner revolt. Uh, that must have been a major issue in black history in, uh, on page 80 and following. Uh, he talks about how this guy spread terror 
and uses that word terror throughout the South. And the result was this new legislation in reaction to what resulted and, and the, that new legislation resulted in new oppression against the blacks. Now, we wish he would have enlarged on that. First of all, to show how ungodly actions, which by Nat Turner begets ungodly reactions, which were these new laws. There, there's a cause and effect there. It's like, it's like those laws weren't just people were all happy and they like, hey, let's make some new laws. There was, there's this guy and he's bringing up these terrors and murders and all this stuff. We need to put more laws in place to prevent this from ever happening again. Um, very, very simplistic how he approached it. As an aside, we think that the new BLM writing is actually going to result in new laws yep. and they won't help anyone in the long run. But rioting nonetheless cannot be allowed for the well-being of any society and laws and enforcement are really the only tools government has to apply against violence. So none of us should be shocked when new legislation comes out and then people cry that that's racism. It's like, you know what? Then stop burning buildings down and maybe we won't have that problem. <laughs> yeah, like is it against the race or is it against the violence? Yeah, and it, but does it affect a race? Maybe. Sure. Um, he gives us a, then a broad history of the hard journey the black had from slavery to today. His treatment there is overall all fine and like Tisby, it shows how Christians would fail to bring dignity to the blacks, uh, seeing them in one way or another uh, as inferior. But also like Tisby, he makes some leaps that should not be done by anyone. An example of this is making KKK uh, a group of Christians. They may have had claimed that you had to be a Christian, but it was not a biblical Christian. It wasn't right. a true Christian. Right. And so it's like, stop making us guilty of a non-Christian organization that, that borrowed Christianese, if you will. It, it, in other words, the KK had, the Ku Klux Klan, however you say it, it's hard to say, it certainly had professing Christians in it, but it was not Christian. And nor could anyone who truly claimed it to be right and good be considered a Christian. Whether they call them Christians and society accepted it is a separate issue. It's not Christian. And it's very frustrating to read and deal with because there's this conflation of actual Christians with people and organizations who use the Bible as a tool to leverage their view in the public eye. This is like um, Republicans and Democrats who will quote scripture like it's theirs, while their whole life actually shows the very opposite. Who's, who's that guy, the Phelps? The guy who, they post the placards, God hates fags and stuff like that. And it's this tiny, tiny, oh, basically it's just family. Mm -hmm. And it's this little tiny church, it's a Baptist church, and they claim to be Christian. And people love to say, oh, see, these are the Christians. This is what Christian is like. They don't even know what the gospel is. They can't even tell you the gospel. Just because they take the word Christian doesn't make them a Christian. <laughs> and you're not going to make me guilty right. of their sin because... But they get the press. Right. So Right. Um, their banner becomes ours just by default. So then in chapter five, uh, we come to a chapter on lament. And like many authors and speakers, uh, what he does is he looks to Israel to see parallels between the Jews and the blacks. But... The way he treats the biblical idea of lament, we would say is shallow at best. He seems to miss the point that they as a people are still, meaning the Jews, are under the disciplining hand of God due to the rebellion. Uh, we see this over and over throughout the Old Testament. Um, their sin is not their past. 
like we would say it's not their forefathers right like we would say about slavery in america right um rather in in israel here in the old testament their sin is their own in fact it still is yeah they're still in rebellion yeah and anything that happens to them and that they lament over it's not because of past sins it's you are presently in rebellion um so anyhow right yeah so to, to to, to be sure, the, the black population has seen suffering in their history. I mean, we don't deny that. But that is not to say that the suffering, that suffering somehow transcends time and the suffering of two generations ago is somehow their suffering. Yeah, their um, present suffering. Right. Um, so, however, there, there was a moving statement on page 98 that the black church uh, had to be created. He talks about this. Um, and it had to be created because black people in the church um, were not viewed as equal in every aspect. Um, and, and so that is sad, that is wrong. Uh, there is no excuse to that. It should not have been this way, but not by way, um, and, and, and not by way of excuse, but simply as fact, it was a problem from the very beginning. Uh, you only need to read the book of Acts and the epistles to see that. Um, yeah, they didn't know what to do with these Gentiles. Right. And in fact, that's actually the main point of Romans. It's not justification by faith or a union in Christ. It's how to deal with the Jew-Gentile problem in Rome. And out of that comes all this rich theology. That the Gentiles are justified as yeah. well. Right? Yeah. Right. Um, so, so we would just say the solution, though, is not to lament, but repent. Uh, and that is always the solution. That's a tweetable one. Bam. Um, a, a second lament that was powerful um, was tokenism. Um, so he, he relates a statement by Brian Loritz on page 102. He says, I am tired of recommending young minority leaders to serve on white church staffs and watching them get used as tokens to show how serious the church is about diversity only to see it end badly, to which I would say, amen. Yeah. I mean, that, I agree. That's what I'm, <laughs> that's getting old. Um, so, so this must be frustrating, and and I guess we would have no real answer for this. Um, behind and under it all is the greater problem of what we keep saying is virtue signaling. Uh, you know, overly big churches, the desire to have a certain image and brand rather than a sound ecclesiology that's focused on evangelism, church planning, equipping the saints, uh, stuff like that. If this were to change. Um, a person is hired or should be hired not because of their color, but because of their gifting and faithfulness. Um, and so what we have now is essentially affirmative action within the church. Yeah. It's not biblical qualifications. It's what color are you? Yeah. Um, and that I can understand should, should be very frustrating. Um, but when he complains about how the church did not lead the Black Lives Matter movement, that's where we're going to begin to part ways. Um, like so many authors and speakers, he lists names of people uh, that were supposedly killed in an unjust manner. Uh, the problem is that the facts so often do not support the narrative that's being pushed. An example of this is Philando Castile. That's how you get, that's, that's how, how you do, do it? it. Okay. Um, so he was the one shot by a police officer in Minnesota. Um, but what's seldom said is that he fit the description of a robbery suspect at the time. And so there, there of course, is going to be a heightened awareness by an, by an officer uh, who's Hispanic. But at first it was white. But it's like, no, no, no. He's, he's Hispanic. He was Hispanic. Yeah. I mean, just his name is. But but you look at him, you're like, so it's not white on black. It's, I hate to say it this way, brown on black. And, sure. But it's not. It's 
I, I was a cop. You you get a you hear of the description and you see a guy that matches that description, you're you can't say, Well, huh, there goes a guy that matches that. <laughs> <laughs> right. Now, um, Castile, he, he didn't comply with the officer's commands, which, as you could understand, only moves the level in f- of fear and concern up for any officer. And so he, um, the, the suspect was armed. Uh, and so the officer thought that Castile was reaching for a gun. And, and so we're not saying that he had to die or that he was guilty. Uh, but what we are saying is that the, the narrative is pushed rather than the actual truth. Um, and it's designed to make this now a racial crime when in reality, nothing about it is racial, nor has it proven to yeah. be so. Yeah. Now on page 116, then he also makes a very telling statement. He says, I found myself exegetically at home with my conservative family on the doctrines of grace, but ethically at home with my liberal family on issues of race and justice. Now let that sink in. It's a common issue we actually see. Somehow the Bible and proper study of the Bible does not produce a lifestyle that works itself out in the public square. That's what he's saying. Exegetically, I'm all reformed. But when I look at how I live my life on race and justice, it's not there. It's going to be with my liberal family. Uh, We have no time to make a persuasive argument on this. Uh, We would just say, listen to the fullness of all of our podcasts. Um, But we do believe that this is actually one of the root problems on race and justice today. Uh, We have competing streams of authority, which is that woke canon you referenced at the beginning. When you see ethics outside of your exegesis, then beloved, let us say it bluntly. If you see ethics outside of your exegesis, then either your ethics are wrong or your exegesis is wrong. Simple as that. Sound exegesis will produce a biblical ethic. It, It can't. You can't miss. And, and we see this as the bigger problem, actually, in the church in America. It's not racial reconciliation or systemic racism. What it really is is the starving of the people of God by not faithfully and fully preaching and teaching the Word of God to them. That, we would argue, is the great evil of the day. We see it played out by a comment he makes on page 118. He says this, The preached message must address the reality of sin on an individual level as well as on a systemic level. Well, that's a nice quote. However, a system is not under the wrath of God. People are. Right. Sin is not a system. It's in the hearts of those who erect systems. Now, get that. Sin is not a system. It's in the heart of those who erect systems. Destroy the power of sin through the gospel, true regeneration, and developing a biblical worldview, and the system simply won't stand. And if you doubt us, just go ask Zacchaeus. Right. That's a pretty good That's line. That's a good quote right there. Yeah. Another example is using MLK. Uh, we had this same problem with Tisby as an example of prophetic preaching. Why not an actual Christian pastor <laughs> who actually preaches a word? Give us the words preaching from Vadi Bakum. Is it Vadi or Vodi? I say Vodi. Okay. Vodi Bakum any day over MLK. Any mm-hmm. day I'll take him. That, there's a man who's a man of God, knows the word, deals with the word. And when he says, turn your Bible to your Bible, your Bible's to Colossians and say, you're actually going to be in Colossians. MLK was an incredible gifted speaker, but he was not a Christian pastor. 
Uh, and then, uh, and I, this is because I have dear friends in South Africa. Um, I, so I know it better than I should. He quotes on page 140, Nelson Mandela, who was an incredibly wicked man. And he did great harm on many who were not part of his uh, ANC party. Um, again, there is no godly man to quote. Instead, he he quotes a, a man who him and his cohorts, they, what they would do is they would go into the black townships where uh, the, the poverty was there. And if you weren't part of the ANC party, um, they would do these neckties. And what that meant is that they would stick a, a tire over you. They'd bind you, stick a tire over you, cut your tongue, your throat, pull your tongue out of the gash in your throat and light you on fire. That's what they do to spread the terrorism to suppress any opposition. This is the great Nelson Mandela. Did he get a peace prize? Oh, yeah. Nobel Peace Prize. Oh, yeah, prize. yeah. But he was the oppressed black man put in prison. Well, there's a reason he was in prison. Yeah. <laughs> and, and again, so we're, we're, we're quoting MLK, we're quoting Du Bois, we're, we're quoting Nelson Mandela, and we're like, give us godly men. That we can look and if learn you want from. us to think biblically, yeah, then right. we want to hear them. We want to we want to know these men. So then, in chapter seven, he gives he begins to make the argument of change, and again, he's using illustrations that really don't support his claims. Um, so he gives the story of Meek Mills. Um, yeah, he was a rapper or is a rapper. Yeah, um, and he was arrested, as the story goes, for quote popping a wheelie. A um, single wheelie in New York, yeah, um, and and the result is that he then receives a two to five year sentence for this, um, and then it's assumed to be racial. Um, the reality is much different, though. Um, but by now, the facts are so lost in the narrative that's being pushed that nobody even cares. Um, I mean, nobody cares except for those who love truth. For them, it, it the facts must care. Um, you know, so, so change is not going to happen with lies is what we're trying to say. Um, but Mason uses it as proof that, look, there's a system of corruption that is designed to trap minorities. And he makes this clear in 129. Um, and so proof, well, he needs no proof. He just needs stories. Um, so it's, it's interesting to see him use John the Baptist as an example of preaching for change. Now, yes, John the Baptist did speak against Herod's immorality, publicly and he suffered the consequences of that um, and he accepted the consequences of that. But what's interesting is that Jesus did not rescue him no, no. from prison. And he could have. He could have. Um, and in fact, I quote it all the time, but he, you know, he says, I've come to free the, the blind, the imprisoned. The and so the disciples of John the Baptist come to Jesus and say, are you the Messiah? He quotes them at Isaiah 60 passage um, and leaves off the part about setting the prisoner free. Yeah, because John's not getting out. Yeah. But that right there is a systemic issue, an unjust issue. Um, so again, we're, we're left wondering what the call of the Christian is um, and what the church is actually supposed to be doing um, based on these words. So we did appreciate the idea of helping those in depressed communities to learn how to start businesses and gain personal independence. Um, but there are much more details would be needed. Uh, okay, then in chapter eight, he gives examples of other places this one corked me, uh, that made change work on racial lines. And so he references Rwanda, South Africa, and Germany. The problem <laughs> is that they're all corrupt. 
the, these programs that were started. And though they're lauded by many uh, social engineers, they're actually not working out true justice. He needs actually to do a lot more homework before he starts lecturing his country, America, on what they should do. Um, here's a simple one. He, he uses South Africa as having this program called Truth and Recu Reconciliation Forms. In other words, a bunch of liberal folks getting together to talk. What he leaves out is how that nation has been descending into anarchy and the death of blacks is incredibly high there. You want to know a bad murder rate, go there. Atrocities to the blacks are occurring by other blacks who are in opposition parties every single day. But they do have forums, so it's all good. Um, and then on page 153, he rightly says that the foundation, I mean, the family rather, is foundational. Well, we agree. But as we read the book, we realize that the policies and the politics he argues for are actually working against the family. And this puts us in a position of agreeing, but also disagreeing. Um, what we mean by that is the whole welfare system. Right. I mean, if you want to talk systemic racism. Yeah. Let's, let's start there. It, it's designed to bring and destroy a family. Um, there are so many things that break that family apart. Um, also just this constant drumbeat of keeping abortion safe and legal. And it's like, don't tell me you're pro family and helping family when you're literally dismembering babies in the wombs of their mother. And yet, the blacks are disproportionately represented as those who are doing this. Um, one other point he makes is on page 159. He mentions that in his neighborhood, the average household income is $15,000. And we question that. Now, that may be true. If that's the only source of income, then we're sorry. And those guys are really poor. But there is also stuff he doesn't talk about. The reality of subsidized housing, welfare, foods. I call them food stamps. It's called something else. Quest, now, Quest well, here is Quest, but every yeah. state has her own. But food stamps, energy assistance, subsidized bus passes, food pantries, clothes pantries, and many other programs, both from the government and the churches, that extend that money greatly. Um, there is also a huge underground economy that exists in any neighborhood that's built around ethnicities that outsiders simply do not know about. And so we would agree, better jobs are good. No, nobody would ever debate that. But we do question the validity of, wow, 15,000. It's like 15,000 is what maybe they're making that's on paper, but there's more going in because unless they are literally saying, we refuse to take advantage of any of those programs that are pointed right. toward them yeah i do and i, I do th and it's such a great problem but i really do think that overweening on government is a major s issue of systemic oppression and it it has to be addressed at some point and, yeah. and my qu question i just keep asking people is why aren't we talking about it at that level yeah yeah so let's bring a conclusion to this on page 89 he talked about how the black church is weary of the constant battle and we can agree with that and it might surprise him to find that we, like many white Christians, are also weary as well. However, until the battle focuses on actual sin by actual people, it will matter little and nothing will change. And in, and in addition, it's a paramount that the discussion first come to some level of agreement to terms and meaning. Um, the goalposts constantly move, and it makes very very difficult for uh, on those who see change 
but there's essentially no acknowledgement of the change. I mean, so racism is now not a personal animosity of a person of a different race. Racism has now just been recently redefined to be um, participating in systemic racism, Mm -hmm. your white privilege, et cetera. It's like, stop changing the goalposts and then we can maybe see some growth and, and, and work. Uh, An example of this is a consistent treatment of history in such a way that the black in America today are somehow still victims of racism that is as bad as their forebearers suffered. It's simply not true. Now, all of this is to say the book is not evil, but we also would say it's not helpful once you get past that emotional impact that it initially will give you. Uh, Get into the actual details and questions arise which uh, there are no answers. But for us, the biggest thing would be how he sees social change as something that is possible without true heart change. That's where we really struggle. When you strip it all away, that's where it comes down. Yep. If we just get more programs and we tear down this system, well, if you tear down whatever system you want, a new system has to be put in place. Yeah. And without heart change, well, I'll say it this way, with, but social change without heart change merely flips things over and makes a new class, the so-called oppressed class. Right. So nothing will change. Yep. So that that's the review. Uh, we hope that's been of some help. Um, and next time we'll talk about something else. Again, don't know <laughs> what that is yet, but uh, until then. Do you they, think we'll do white fragility? I shudder. Yeah, we'll see. Uh, yeah, that one's just, that, uh, that one's just vile. That's yeah, just, that's our review. It's vile. Burn it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so until next time, make sure to tune in, join this conversation. We would love to hear your thoughts on Eric Mason and Woke Church. Please give us a five-star rating and leave us a review over at iTunes. And don't forget to like, share, comment, rate, and review on your platform of choice. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And tell a friend. <laughs>